Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. They say age doesn't matter, but pay attention to the numbers here. In 1665, Isaac Newton had a really big year. He made a huge contribution to algebra, and he started his work on developing calculus. That year, he also turned 23. More than two centuries later, another scientist came up with a huge advance in our understanding of physics. His name was Niels Bohr, and he developed a breakthrough model of the atom, 28 years old. Several years after that, another scientist upended the field of astronomy. Cecilia Payne realized that stars were composed primarily of hydrogen, making it the most abundant element in the universe. She was 24. For years, there's been this kind of conventional wisdom that great genius is often young genius. And even if you're not a genius, breakthrough ideas come from young people. Laszlo Barabashi is a professor of network science at Northeastern University, and he decided to study when in our lives we actually come up with our best ideas. Laszlo, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure. So it seems, I think, like accepted wisdom amongst many people that in some fields of study, like physics, the brilliant things are done by uh, the really young people. But your research says that's not the case. First, why did you start looking into this at all? Well, because I'm turning 50. <laughs> and I wanted Good to reason. know, is there any hope for me? Can I still make a discovery? <laughs> right? but, uh, but down the line, of course, if you are a scientist and you are kind of really nearing 50 or beyond 50, you do need to question whether is there a chance that my best days are behind me. And if I look at my own career, uh, I published what is, in my career, the biggest impact paper in my early 30s. So the question is, you know, should I carry on or maybe it's time for me to start hosting radio shows? <laughs> right, exactly. Is this the point where you start phoning it in, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> That's okay. Right. So how do you study this kind of thing, whether the sort of really smart thing that somebody does is when they're 32 mm -hmm. um, or whether there's still hope at 52. So there has been quite a bit of studies in the last few decades about looking at the history of innovation and discoveries. And there's lots of anecdotal and there's lots of concrete evidence. And what the anecdotal evidence shows that if you look, for example, all the physicists who made quantum mechanics possible, they were all in their early 20s. And so many Nobel Prizes that came out that came from research done by or virtually teenagers. And, and, and so people kind of started to expand that and look at systematically. They would look at dictionaries, who are the important people, and they would say, when did they make their biggest discovery? Mm -hmm. And there is a consensus that the median age is about 39. That is, that really people in their 30s make their biggest, most important work, whether that's literature, innovation, science, uh, seems to be rather consistent across the pattern. But I'll just stop you for a second. 39 is young, mm -hmm. but it's not 22. 
It is not 22. So, so, so there are field differences. So in physics, traditionally has been in the 20s and maybe early 30s. In other areas, like engineering, always a little bit later. And what people have shown even before us is to say, well, there has been a consistent shift towards a little bit older ages in the last few decades, mainly because education is taking much longer. So that could, to get to the point, you know, you have to study more. Right. Okay, so how do you then study this kind of thing to see where your real breakthroughs are and and how things taper off, if at all, as you get older. Sure. So so our interest was to say all this research has been done on geniuses. It's actually part of the so-called genius literature. And so we wanted to ask what happens with ordinary scientists. It turned out that the vast majority of the people made their biggest impact work in the first 20 years of their career. And beyond that, it dropped precipitously the chance that the biggest impact work will come, let's say, 35 or 25 years after you started your career. What we realized that it's not that people are smarter in the first 20 years of their career, but they try more. Right. Well, they're trying to get tenure. They're trying to prove themselves. That's right. So what is this telling us? What is telling us is that every single work that we publish as a scientist has the same chance to be the biggest breakthrough. But because we publish a lot early in our career and we taper off later, the chances of having the pious discovery will come early. So think of scientific discoveries as uh, playing the lottery or throwing a dice, right? So as long as you keep buying tickets, you have a chance of winning the lottery. When you stop buying tickets, you actually, it tapers off your chance. So it sounds like 50-year-olds are not really any less likely to come up with a smart breakthrough than 25-year-olds. Uh, it's just that 50-year-olds just, they're relaxing a little bit more. It's not, The pressure's not on as much. That's right. And, and it's been noticed before that there is a lower productivity, but no one really connected to the creativity part. They also thought creativity goes down. And, you know, the reasons why the, uh, the productivity drops at 50 or whatever, uh, it's because we start having families, we start being sick, we start taking up administrative roles. Uh, there are lots of other opportunities opening up our career that we want to do. So, so it's well explained that, but the fact is, that, you know, the chances of making a breakthrough is completely uniform. And I don't think this is specific to science. I mean, there's now, once we made this discovery, we started to see lots of anecdotal evidence that is true beyond science, just about anywhere. So I would guess that you, as a uh, radio host, if you would have some measure of what is your highest impact uh, uh, radio show, it would completely be age-independent. I agree with that. And, and, And it would be random. In the sense that it would not be in a certain part of your career, it would be completely random when it would appear. So just have to carry on and do that. No, I agree with that. And I and whether it's radio hosts or physicists, um, there is also some truth that that you know maybe in the beginning you're trying really hard, mm-hmm. but and which is true if you're a radio mm-hmm. host too. But as you get older, you get better. And you have more, you know, you have more ways of drawing connections because, like, when you were 25, you didn't have those connections in your head to draw. That's what I thought so through. But our data shows that's not the case whatsoever. Hmm. So there were lots of hypotheses that we demasked and we kind of had to destroy in this paper. One of the hypotheses we had when we went in was that, that once you make a 
big discovery or a really cool show, then you somehow got it. You know what it takes to really make a big, next big discovery. You know the elements. And so we thought that perhaps you would see the learning process leading to that. So the papers approaching the big discovery would better and better. But most important, once you had that, it would actually stay at a higher level. No evidence whatsoever for that. This is what we actually call in the lab the finger curve. <laughs> because it <laughs> turns out that if you look at the history of the papers around your highest impact discovery, there's low impact paper, suddenly your finger going out, that's your highest impact paper, and then goes back to where it was before. So, so you don't see success coming, or nor do we learn from it. I have to say, you're showing me your middle finger right now. I'm, try <laughs> I'm trying not to be offended. I'm trying to take this in the scientific context Good. in which it's intended. <laughs> it is intended like that. Um, does that mean, you know, we think about songs and, you know, people who write songs. We talk about one-hit wonders. Is that equally true in science that that you know people have these papers that are amazing and game-changing for a con for economics or for chemistry or for biology or whatever and maybe never again in their career or maybe only 20 years later in their career do sort of all the pieces align for them again and they think I got it again but it doesn't like keep happening so no and and that's kind of the second part of the discovery and perhaps the most troubling for me as a scientist and it generally has been the most troubling for the community. Because after we analyze all the data, what we realize that there is a very simple model that describes how a scientist works, which is I take a random number, which is my random project that I'm going to work on. And then I multiply it with a skill parameter that is unique to me. And the impact of the work will be the product of the two. What does it mean? It means that sometimes I can pick a low impact work and multiply it with my skill parameter and will be low impact. But sometimes I can pick a high impact and multiply it with my skill parameter will be a higher impact work. Okay, so you so, take the project, you add to it your talent, and hopefully you get you get right. some great thing. So out of all it. every scientist, even the greatest one, published very bad projects because they picked the wrong number. Mm -hmm. But if you have a high skill parameter, you will occasionally have a blockbuster. And here comes the trick: we thought that the skill would improve with age, would improve along the career. It's completely unchanged during the career of a scientist. It's mind-boggling. No change whatsoever. And it's mind-boggling because I really believe that the skill parameter should change. I really think that we learn. I learn. We all do. But somehow the skill parameter doesn't want to change the career of these individuals, whether they are biologists, physicists, or mathematicians. Have you ever considered um, the possibility that older scientists have hits not because they are better than younger scientists, mm -hmm. um, but because they are famous. And so somebody says, this this guy is like a big deal in chemistry, or like yeah. this guy is a big deal in biology. I should take a look at his paper. And because of that, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? People listen to the songs that are written by famous people, and they like them. And maybe there's good songs written by non-famous people, but they never heard those songs. So, you know. It's a, it's a beautiful question. And this is something that we can quantify, and we did quantify, we meaning the community. And the answer is, Fame brings you visibility. Because of fame, I'm going to listen to your radio show or I will read your paper. But once I read it, 
then it's the value of what you put in front of me that matters. So even if you are very famous, if you put out a crappy paper, it will get an initial boost because you are famous, because I'm going to read it, but it will not have a long-term impact. So fame doesn't carry over in the long term. It just gives you visibility. Now, that's very important because every year about a million research papers are published and we read a hundred the most, right? So which one do we read and how much attention we pay to them is clearly biased by fame, right? Or respect towards the scientist. But once we read that, are we able to follow up on that? Is it providing ideas on which we can build it? And no matter how famous he or she as a scientist, if the paper has no ideas that I can follow up, all, I, all you achieve with the fame is that I read it and I forgot it. Now, you're absolutely right. It is possible and there are fantastic examples in the literature where credit is not given to whom it sh uh, should deserve to. So, you know, one of the other things we do in the lab is we ask, if you and I write a paper, let's say, on network, mm -hmm. who will get the credit for it? And I can tell you that I will get the credit for it. <laughs> and the reason I will get the credit for it I'm is not, not, because, <laughs> not because you are a woman, not, but mainly because you are not a scientist and you have not published in this area before. And even if you have 10,000 papers before, you know, what, you, what we find is that, is that because I have a track record in networks, people will attribute the discovery to me. Right. So my answer is, like, the way I would put it is that if the Pope and I write a paper on network science, that's my paper. If we write on divine intervention, that's his paper. I don't know. I think if the Pope writes a paper on network science, you should watch out. <laughs> <laughs> um, give me a sense... Do you feel like uh, your best work is still ahead of you? Oh, I know that I have a chance. <laughs> um, you did say that one other piece of this whole thing, though, is that skill does not really change that much over time. So if you have hope that your best days may be ahead of you, are you at all depressed that you're not getting any better. <laughs> Even though you're working hard, presumably, every day, somehow that's not adding up to being more skillful. No. To me, what is encouraging is the fact that, first of all, my skill set stays constant, right? So I can continue doing that. And now I have the evidence that I should carry on in many ways. Lassel Barabashi is a professor of network science at Northeastern University. Thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure. We will have a link to Barabashi's original paper on how scientists fare as they age. That's at innovationhub.org. If you liked this interview, take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes. Leaving a review actually helps more people find their way to Innovation Hub. So think of it as spreading interesting ideas one review at a time. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com.